Oh, welcome everybody. There, there's our pager. I can't bear to start before the bells ring because it's not, that's, that's our timer. <laughs> so welcome, welcome to St Paul's Cathedral. Thanks so much all for coming in on this lovely autumn day. Um, my name's Elizabeth Foy. I'm the head of um, adult learning here and it's my privilege and my joy to put on these events. And I have to say, obviously all events are equal and I love them equally and nobody has a favourite child, but <laughs> this actually is rather one of my favourite children because Robert Frew, uh, oh, I, uh, whose name I always <laughs> expect to pronounce, I'm sorry, Frewith. Exactly. No, I'm sure that's not true. Um, is, uh, has become a friend, did a wonderful day for us a couple of years ago. Some of you might, be, might have been here on that day, um, a reflective day about Julian of Norwich. She was at the time the priest director at the shrine in Norwich and is now um, living in North, North Carolina in the States. And so very, very good to see him back here. But it was a particularly special day um, to me, a deeply important day for me. And uh, I did urge him to write it all down um, <laughs> because I thought it shouldn't be just contained to the 30 or 40 people who were there that day. And uh, I'm very, very pleased to say he did write it all down and some more. And this very wonderful book is um, in part, uh, is, is, comes out of his long, long meditations and contemplation with Julian about Julian over 20 years in the contemplative order of Julian in the States. Um, and then as the shrine director, priest, shrine, priest director of the shrine in Norwich. So a great um, spiritual uh, connection, I think it's fair to say, with Julian and with Julian's um, extraordinary theology. So I'm particularly pleased that he's here today, particularly pleased that he's come back to us at the, uh, at the other end of this mammoth journey of, of writing this book. And I'm going to hand over to him. Here he is. Well, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, I really do want to thank Elizabeth for inviting me to be here, here in London. As a citizen of a mere former colony, um, it is overwhelming to be here at St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, as we say in the States, it's awesome. Um, it's incredible to be here. Um, but Elizabeth has done much more, as she hinted, than just um, invite me to speak here this morning. In 2014, she wrote me a letter and invited me to speak um, and to offer a day of reflection for the adult forum uh, on Julian of Norwich and on Julian's most famous saying, which is, all shall be well. And so I agreed to do that and went off to the beautiful Royal Foundation of St. Catharines and you have things like royal foundations here. It's, it's wonderful. And we had this day on All Shall Be Well, and what happened on that day was uh, so amazing uh, for me personally and for the people on the day um, that it kind of grew into this book with Elizabeth's help. Um, so now we have this book, we have the day, and now she invited me here. So she really is the, the guiding spirit, the guardian angel of that book. Um, and I'm really grateful um, that she prompted me to do that. So what I'd like to do today um, is to share what happened on that quiet day. If you were there, we'll go through it again. Um, and, um, and then tell you what I came to from writing this book on Julian. Um, some new insight into compassion. I believe the whole of Julian's spirituality, the whole of her theology, the whole of her experience of God is fundamentally about compassion and that a Julian spirituality is an actualization of the Christian faith that happens when we are compassionate. Okay, so it's all about compassion. But before I do that and talk about the day, I should introduce Julian herself and say a little bit about how I got to know her. Back in the States, when you're going to be ordained to the priesthood, you have to undergo the general ordination exams, which are five awful days of exams. Um, one of my days was um, explain the history and theology and practice of the Episcopate from St. Paul to the present day. And I had eight hours, it was 5,000 words, go. Well, at the end of this week, they have something called coffee hour questions which are about 60 questions to answer in two hours. 
um, that you should be able to rattle off answers to at any coffee hour. And uh, one of them was, who was Julian of Norwich and what did he do? <laughs> so first of all, Julian was a she. That's important. And Julian was a 14th century mystic theologian and spiritual writer. By mystic, I mean that she had direct experience of God. By theologian, I meant that she reflected upon this and integrated this into a systematic theology in relationship to the faith of the church. And by spiritual writer, I mean that the whole reason why Julian was writing was to help us in our lives of prayer, to help us live close to God. That's why she wrote. She's been called the quintessence of Anglican spirituality. Thomas Merton, the great 20th century monk, loved her. Rowan Williams likes her, maybe loves her. Um, and um, Desmond Tutu um, has followed Julian for years, decades, in his own journey in South Africa. So she's a really significant woman. She is considered one of the foremost mystics in any religion and certainly one of the most creative theologians in the English tradition. So Julian, living in the 14th century, how did she come to be a mystic, theologian, and spiritual writer? Um, she, when she was 30 years old, she had a near-death experience. So she was oscillating between life and death, on the edge of death. And in that experience, she had a series of 16 mystical revelations, what she called showings, which fundamentally did two things. They opened her heart to the unconditionality of God's love, the unconditionality of God's rejoicing in us and saying yes to us, unconditional yes to us and to creation. And they opened Julian as well to the, that the essence of her soul was of loving yes to God and that that loving of God as the essence of who she is um, could never be broken. So she discovered in God this unconditional love which is always rejoicing in us, yes to us, and in herself a depth of union with God that can never be broken, and a union that we all already have. So I'd like to just read a bit. What are these mystical showings? What do I mean by this? I'd like to read from the, uh, the, the very first showing, which really contains all the showings in itself. So she's on her deathbed. She is pretty sure at this point that she's not going to die, um, but a curate holds before her a crucifix and asks her to gaze upon the crucifix to comfort herself in this time of trial. And um, she says, in this showing, suddenly I saw the red blood trickling down from under the garland, the crown of thorns, hot and freshly and most plenteously, hot and freshly and most plenteously, just as it was at the time of his passion, when the garland of thorns was pressed onto his blessed head. So Julian sees the crucifix come alive. This is a vision of the suffering humanity of Jesus, which if you think about it, is a vision, is a perception of our suffering humanity. It's Jesus suffering with us, our humanity. And Julian makes that clear later. But her journey into the suffering humanity of Jesus, which was a common devotional thing in the 14th century, um, was really a journey into a perception of, a facing into the suffering of her humanity, our humanity. Jesus' wounds are our wounds. But it goes on. She says, just so I conceive truly and powerfully that it was he himself, both God and man, the same who suffered for, thus for me, who showed it to me without any go-between. That sounds sort of, well, Julian is saying that Jesus himself is showing this to her. But this is really significant because Julian, the feeling of this vision for Julian is a feeling of immense intimacy. That Jesus himself is choosing to show her what it was like to be him. So it's, a, it's an intimate encounter. 
And that's part of Julian's whole spirituality. It's about intimacy and presence. And then she goes on, and in the same showing, suddenly the Trinity almost filled my heart with joy. And I understood it shall be like that in heaven without end for all who shall come there. So she sees into our suffering humanity, which Jesus has opened himself to endure with us. She sees that it is Jesus himself who is sharing himself with her. It's the personal, homely, she says, intimate interchange. And with that, she sees the uncreated bliss of the Godhead, as she'll say later, the eternal joy of God. So it's not just about the suffering, our suffering humanity. It's also about this joy of the Godhead, the eternal joy of God. And if you take these two, the suffering humanity of Jesus, which is kind of us, and you lay over it or, or surround it with this eternal yes and joy of God, that's the heart of Julian's entire spiritual vision. So she had 16 showings that went on and elaborated this, that went further into the passion of Jesus, um, that went further into the, the sense of God as bliss, um, into herself as well. And when they were over after a few days, shortly thereafter, um, she wrote what's called the short text. She wrote down an autobiographical account of the revelations of divine love. Um, and that's the first person autobiographical account of a mystical experience of God. After that, at some point, she became an anchorite at St. Julian's Church in Norwich, taking the name of the church as her own. So she, she gave up her birth name, which is why she remains mostly anonymous, and took the name of the church as her own. And after 15 to 20 years of reflection, Julian wrote the long text, such teachings of divine love is an amazing document because it shows the experience of God of a 14th century woman, yes, but it also combines with that uh, six times as much material as in the long text. It combines with that short text 20 years of theological reflection and pastoral counsel about how to live our lives of prayer. And that's one reason why I think the Revelations is really unique. It has an autobiographical account, and it has in it an implicit, systematic, coherent theology. She's not just a sweet spiritual writer. She is one of the most creative theologians in the history of the church. She lived as an anchorite for the rest of her life and died around 1416, 1420. Now, I myself, I was a... 20-year-old, 19-year-old philosophy student at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, which I'm sure you've never heard of. <laughs> but it was a state, big state university, and I was a recent convert to Christianity and felt that I needed to give my life to Jesus in some total way, some complete way. And I began sort of banging around, looking at monasteries, much to my mother's dismay. Um, and I happened upon the Order of Julian of Norwich, which is an Episcopal religious order uh, of monks and nuns um, in, in the United States. And the charism of this order, its aim, is to go in and retrieve the most venerable practices of Christian spirituality, contemplative spirituality, mystical spirituality, to go in and reclaim these, retrieve them, live them within a monastic context and discipline, and then share them with the church. So, as Elizabeth was saying, I was a monk for about 20 years, which is still kind of shocking to say. <laughs> I drop it off at cocktail parties, you know. Well, I was a monk, and <laughs> conversation just kind of stops. You know, it, lur it lurches onwards. Um, but that's important, because my reading of Julian was not about how does she compare to Brigitte of Sweden or Catherine of Siena, or can I take her Christology and compare it to, say, Karl Barth or Karl Rahner or somebody? My reading of Julian was a monk's reading, which is, I need to grow in love. I need to grow in humility. I want to live close to God, and I don't. Help. My experience as a monk was to give my entire life to be close to God, 
and it didn't work, which is the universal experience. And then there's just a need for help to grow in authentic love, authentic hum humility, authentic openness to God. So that's why I read Julian, and that's why she became to me a companion and a sister and a mother. But why should you care too much? One of my friends, who's more of a businessman, said, well, you know, Julian of Norwich is like a sub-niche of a sub-niche of a sub-niche, you know? What's, what's, what's the appeal? And I think the thing is this. If you want to grow in love, in a capacity for love, a capacity for honesty as well. So I think honesty, truthfulness, and love have to go together. If you want to grow in humility, if you have a sense of wanting to grow in closeness to God, then Julian is your woman. And the reason why is she not only communicates to us the truth of a God and of ourselves where that living close to God is possible, so she talks about God and ourselves in a way that makes that possible, but she also shares with us her struggle in growing into that herself. Because there is that autobiographical component and there is that 20 year lag between a short text and a long text. You see, so you, be, you can see in Julian her own process, her own struggle in growing into this God of love. And that's why she's a companion to me. I mean, how much better is it um, to, to walk with somebody sharing their own difficulty and coming to terms with God than just to hear that God is love one more time, right? So just, she's a, a fantastically intimate friend in that way. So what happened on that quiet day? Well, Elizabeth said, you know, speak on all shall be well. And I said, oh, in my heart. That didn't come across in the email, I don't think. Um, because I've heard all shall be well for decades as a monk in the order of Julian of Norwich. Oh, I've left the order. I'm no longer a monk, but so on. Um, and um, I've heard so many sermons in which a preacher would just vent about the horrors of the world and how bad things are, and then say, but, as Julian said, all shall be well. Well, thanks for that, Father, as it goes. And in my own life, I'm aware that those four words, all shall be well, have been quasi-sacramental for people. I know one woman at the Julian Shrine who told me that she was, she thought on her deathbed, full of anxiety, anguish, and a friend brought all shall be well to her, and it allowed her to kind of just to open up into that wellness of whatever happens. So the words are powerful for people, all shall be well, because they elicit, invite a relaxation, a trust, a surrender in, that everything is in the process of well-making. Even this, even me, even you, even us, that we're in this process of all being made well. And for some people, it's like sacramental. It just does that. It elicits a trust. But I also knew how challenging this is. So I'd lived with this for 20 years um, in a monastery. Um, and the challenge of it is um, that it invites us, indeed, to be open to all things. Not some things, but all things, as in the process of God's universal well-making. So normally, we're open to this much of life. This is really good. This part of life is good. And we kind of, you know, we can push the rest aside. But Julian, God comes to Julian saying that all shall be well. Yes, Julian, in spite of sin, in spite of suffering, in spite of the horrors that we find in this world. I am actually taking all of this. I'm embracing all of this in a process that is going to make it all well. So, if you want to live with God, what that means is that we need to become open to all things as in the process of God's well-making. Now, don't, don't pull the red herring at this point and say, what about, what, about, what about Syria? What about refugees? What about all that stuff? People, you jump to those intellectual questions as a way to kind of stop this. And it's true, those are huge questions. But just start with the unwellness 
you find in your own life. Don't worry about Syria for now with this. Just your own life, our own lives. What in our lives cannot be part of God's well-making? And so Julian becomes a kind of a therapist, kind of a pastor, asking us to encounter all those things that we demand cannot be part of God's well-making. Now, on this quiet day, I was kind of rolling this out a bit, and I was also reaching for something very personal to me, which was, I, at that point in my life, I was feeling a need where I felt that, indeed, God's love needed to and could speak to more of my own suffering, my own grief. And so I needed to really hold on to all shall be well and to the love that implies, right? So I was reaching for that with the retreatants, with the challenge, all shall be well conveys. And right in the middle of this quiet day, on a quiet day, you're not supposed to talk. On a quiet day, you're not supposed to interrupt the speaker, of all things. And you're English, you don't interrupt speakers. Someone just spoke up and said, no. We can't do that. There's, and this person said, there is stuff in my life that, that is just not, it's not good to bring that out. It's not good to invite that as part of God's work. It is just past. It is done. It is, as it were, in the basement of my soul. And so we engaged in a dialogue on this quiet day, um, which, as an American, I will call vigorous fellowship. And it wasn't a debate in terms of I was going to prove this man that he was wrong. We were reaching for something together. We were reaching for something that would allow us to say, yes, this is the truth of my life. And I'm not going to let that be defaced by easy religious slogans about God's love or whatever. I'm going to hold on to the truth of my life, which seems in some way to defy a God of love but I'm not going to let go of this promise of all being made well either, that God is ultimately love. So how do we do this? How do we hold on to the truth of our lives and hold on to a God of love who promises, is promising, to make all things well? And what we came to is kind of a metaphor from my counseling days, um, which was... um, maybe we could think of our souls like counseling rooms. Empty rooms, and there's two chairs. And in one chair, our lives can sit with all their pain. And we don't have to prove how all that pain is taken up by God. We just let that sit there. And in the other chair, God sits with the revelation of God is love and God is joy and God with that promise of all being made well. And the question was, can you do that? Can you do just that? Can you allow for yourself to be fully in your soul, all of you to be there, and to allow God and that promise of love to be there? Just to be there at the same time, to be in the room together. And the idea was that maybe our life would begin to interrogate God a bit and say, but how can you be love? How can you be love? That's what Julian did for nearly 13 chapters after God told her all shall be well. How can that be so? So the the revelation of God's love begins to draw out of our lives those places that aren't well, that don't feel love, that must begin to speak to love. On the other hand, God's love can interrogate our lives. Why is there all this wrathfulness in you? God says to Julian, Jesus says to Julian, aren't you satisfied that ever I suffered for thee? So coming out of that day, I begin to think, well, this is something. I like this. That maybe Christian faith is not just believing things or having a sense of trust that kind of comes and goes. But maybe Christian faith, increase our faith, How's that for divine synchronicity? Um, Maybe Christian faith is about, yes, allowing the truth of myself and my world into my awareness, into my soul, 
to be there, and the truth of God in Jesus as self-sacrificial, vulnerable love, making all things well, and to allow the world in, self, world, and God, and giving them space in myself to have a conversation, a counseling hour. Well, that's what I attempted to kind of struggle out with the book. And after the book was done, I sat back in my chair, put my feet up on the desk, knowing I was going to come and do a book tour, and I asked myself, what did I learn? What did I really learn in, in struggling this out? And the first thing that I saw um, in the process of writing the book was indeed that Julian's spirituality is fundamentally about compassion. And this notion of faith I have developed and shared is fundamentally the action of compassion, of allowing myself and God and the world to be within me, to be resonant with myself, my world, and my God. That's empathy. When I act on that, that's compassion. And I thought, huh, so the publishers are going to call this growing in faith, the Julian of Norwich. It could have been growing in compassion. Compassion, the actualization of Christian faith. The Dalai Lama said years ago that his religion is kindness. And I'd like to say that my religion is compassion. And I don't mean that in just saying being nice to people, forcing myself to be nicer than I want to be. All right? That's not my religion. My religion is receiving the word of God about love that Jesus is into myself and receiving myself into myself and receiving you into myself. And in the feeling conversation that happens to act. That, I think, is the fruit of Julian's mystical experience of God. That is what Christian faith looks like to me. It's simply compassion. It's theology, it's mystical experience, it's pastoral work, it's all of it. And that simple opening of self to world, self, and God. And the neat thing is, for me, I noticed in Julian, you know, where she starts in her compassion is not with compassion to others, me being compassionate to you. It's not being compassionate to herself, as you would want to be in the counseling room, to be open to yourself. Her compassion starts with compassion for God. And isn't that lovely? Julian understands that to be a spiritual person is to feel into the reality of God, have a feeling for how God is, how God experiences, how God feels, if we can say that, and to know that not only in her head but in her body. And the reason she can do this is her belief in Jesus as God, as human, so that experiencing something of Jesus' humanity Letting that impact her, affect her, give her knowledge of, 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 of Jesus' humanity is giving her knowledge of God. So for Julian, the, the, the journey of compassion begins oddly with this compassionate opening of herself to the person of Jesus, saying, I want to share fully in your crucifixion, in your experience. I want to know what it was like to be you because that's what it meant to be a lover of God, a friend of God. And I just wonder about that for us today. Religion, spirituality, contemplative prayer, meditation, Lexio Divina, social action, about being open to the humanity of Jesus and those wounds and feeling that first. And that led Julian on a journey to become more compassionate with herself and to be more compassionate and acceptant of the world as a whole. A lifelong journey. And 
to close, um, if we think about God as Julian presented God with this promise that all shall be well, I am love, I am rejoicing in you, I even like you, I want you always to be open to me. I am making all things in your life well, in this world well. And then we think about our experience like this. When these two begin to interrogate each other, what happens but the figure of Jesus Christ on the cross appears in the, in the middle. It's Jesus, the love of God, suffering this world who holds together the reality of our human lives and the reality of God's redemptive loving and working. And you know, it's actually kind of simple how we enter into this. It's not fireworks or rocket science, as they say. It's making time in our lives to welcome ourselves, to welcome a word of love, and to see what they do to each other. And to listen to other people, to welcome other people in. How does that, how does God's love speak to the Hare Krishna who drove me to the airport on Wednesday? By my listening to him? How does God's love speak to me in those turgid areas of suffering in my life? How does God prompt me to act in the racial divisions in my native North Carolina? I think it's all, in the end, just about this compassion. I think Christian faith, and my journey in faith, is about compassion, is being able to be open to feel the reality of another in myself. As myself, but not as myself. And that's God, that's you, and that's me. Thank you. And I really want to say it's a joy to be able to un, un, uh, un offer this stuff. Um, after writing the book and realizing it was kind of about compassion and about faith, I now on this book tour get to say it to people. It's fantastic. But it comes across a little bit in the book. Yes, so. it does. So fantastic to hear that. Thank you. So anybody find anything challenging that they'd like to ask about? Do we have any questions? I could hold the first. Oh, no. Right. There we go. Gentleman at the back. Boldly go. Sure. So uh, the question is, um, Julian believed in hell, which was received on this, this TV program. She didn't, she didn't believe in hell. Um, I don't think that's actually accurate. Um, Julian was a medieval Christian, okay, and she's in that worldview entirely. Um, the one place where, there's a couple places where hell comes up in the book, um, and Julian asks God to see hell, and God says, no, that won't be helpful to you. So hell doesn't appear at all in the book. Julian can't understand how all shall be well if some creatures shall be damned. And she asks God about that, and God's answer is, trust me. Okay? So there's, there's kind of an unknowing in Julian about the final answer to things. Um, she, never, she, she doesn't need to postulate hell at all to make this process of her spiritual life and her theology coherent. I would say that, but I think that for her, she remained within the ambit of church teaching about the possibility of hell, which I want to remind everybody, in the strictest tradition, is not that anybody necessarily is there. Even in the Catholic tradition, Karl Rahner was great on this, 20th century, that there may be a hell, but we know it's not an item of belief that anybody is in there. And that's, that's Catholic, hardcore, Vatican II stuff, Karl Rahner. So I think Julian may, may have been in that kind of position. 
So can this give us some insight into the book of Job, is the question. Um, is, so I'm, I'm guessing you're asking something about the mystery of suffering. Um, in the context of Julian or of joy? Job. So God's testing Job with various, so that's the question. Do we, are you asking, do we imagine a God who tests us with suffering to test our faithfulness? So, so I think, I'll, I'll, try, I'll try to lay out some thoughts and you'll see, tell me if that's adequate or not. Um, I, um, in the book of Job, God uh, is allowing Satan to afflict Job with various kinds of suffering to prove his faithfulness to God. Will he curse God in the end? And he barely stays, get, barely gets through it, and God rewards him with all kinds of wonderful things. Lots of camels, if I remember right. Um, so it's, it's kind of a bad, it's, it's a struggle with the reality of keeping faith in the mystery of, of our suffering, something like that. Um, and part of Julian's question is indeed, why have you allowed all this suffering? Because she, is, she perceives suffering as coming out of sin. Why did you allow this, O God of love? And that's where God says to her, all shall be well. And that kicks off the dialogue between Julian about how can this be well? And God says, trust me, how can it be well? Trust me, how can it be well? Trust me. Um, but I think pastorally, I think that those times of suffering which kind of unearth our resentment to God and our wrath against God, those are pastorally incredibly significant, potentially transformative experiences. Because if we can re retain that wrath that we might have for God because of the way things are, if we curse God um, and still say, stay kind of in the ambit of God and be in this conversation between, well, God does say love and I can't accept that, I think healing transformation can happen. I think it's, that's a deeper faith can emerge beyond that. In the back? Julian of Norwich. I love that question. Um, and we have, we have some time. So um, stop me if I go too long, too long on about monastic life. Um, so I, I said the charism of the order is to go in and retrieve this contemplative mystical stuff in the tradition. Um, retrieve it, live it, and share it with the church. Um, the order of Julian did that within a monastic life that was primitive in the sense of we did all our own work. When I joined, we were as a community poor. We couldn't afford health care in the United States. Um, couldn't afford car insurance. We had a car. Um, so it was a primitive monastic community. We did all our own work. Um, we didn't have much money. Um, and we lived a life of a Benedictine kind of life of prayer. We weren't Benedictine strictly, but it was daily offices with work periods, the bell rings, back to church, have a meal, take a rest, back to work, bell rings, back to church, every day, that kind of thing. Where it was different from a lot of communities was with this emphasis on really living the contemplative life. Um, so we didn't take on a lot of works outside the community. We were mostly cloistered, which some communities here in England are as well. Um, and this emphasis on interior conversion um, which and an inner prayer and contemplative prayer. So we had, it was kind of like a Benedictine Carmelite fusion, if that makes sense, if that means anything, with this emphasis on the inner life and the journey in prayer within a, within a stable Benedictine daily structure. Um, I loved it because I got to go work in the garden. I was a groundskeeper for 10 years. So my mornings were like, you know, four hours of prayer which is kind of cool. Um, lots of Lexio Divina and reflection and meditation and then out into the garden for three hours in beautiful Wisconsin. And then noonday prayer and then afternoon was theology and writing letters. I mean, that's just so sweet. Um, but within that is a, is a kind of a formation about um, becoming a person who might live close to God 
Um, and I used to say that the best thing about monastic life is there's nothing to write home about. That literally people would say, so well, how's it been? It's been great. I cleaned toilets yesterday and <laughs> I tilled the garden today and uh, we prayed a lot. It was just kind of a kind of an, an open life that just kind of that did I think held held us made us vulnerable to God. In the words of Rowan Williams. And how do we learn, understand, and practice unconditional love without uh, experiencing conditional love through our experience? So can one uh, practice unconditional love without first experiencing conditional love? Um, well, um, I don't think any of us is, has a capacity for unconditional love. Like truly, there's always, even if we think we're loving, we're just not aware of that point where we're going to become unloving. Okay, so we can, we can, we only, only God can love unconditionally. And I, I believe that our capacity to love and to grow in love is contingent on receiving love from others. So receiving conditional love from parents, teachers, peers, to whatever degree that I have received that love, I am actually capable of being loving to others. Now that, that conditions how much we can love, right? It definitely makes it finite. And part of Julian's experience was to have that divine intervention, which was the overwhelming experience of infinite love, which is then seen as a challenge to those boundaries of our love, almost a threat to those boundaries. And the process is then to kind of grow out in more love. So in kind of a Hollywood way, um, you have the image of the guy who's not very loving, he's 47 years old like I am and mostly bald and going along with life and he's curmudgeonly and stuff. And then someone loves him and as Hollywood has, it transforms him into a loving person. But somehow I think there's something in that, in that, in that the only way we actually grow in love is through intervention of love from the outside. And Christianity is an intervention of love in our lives. When God says, Jesus, this is me, that's God saying, I am love. I am here in this way. So, gosh. Um, on, on the left, yes, yes. She is. Um, the presiding, the former presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, Catherine Jeffert Shorey, on her inaugural address, quoted Julian of Norwich and said, and called Jesus our mother, which Julian does. The next day, she was called a heretic in the press. And she was simply referring to this long tradition of Jesus as mother, which Julian really develops. Um, the idea that Julian, Julian says that there is no wrath in God because God is this unconditional love that supports us in our being. Um, so God is never frustrated with us like I am with my kids. Like, I, Because if God was like that with us, we would just simply cease to exist. Um, so some people find that challenging to interpret with Old Testament theology about the wrath of God and so on. Um, it can be done, but people still find that kind of very challenging. But the feminist angle in Julian is huge. And her use of body, emotion, sensation, intuition, imagination as means of being with God, that's pretty countercultural. We often want it, it's just about reason or about social polity or something. Um, so she still has people who push against her. And in her own time, we honestly don't know. I mean, her, her manuscript was was written down likely by a scribe and was circulated uh, um, probably among groups of people who were devoutly into the contemplative and spiritual and mystical life. So it never got huge uh, distribution um, and it was probably passed hand to hand. And there is awareness in the text from Julian and in the scribal colophon that yes, taken out of context, some of what Julian writes would be considered heretical, taken out of context. 
there. And then, and then next, yes. Why did I leave it? That's, and that's a really great question. Um, and it's kind of like asking somebody, why did you get divorced, in a way? It's a really complicated thing. It's taken me some years, and I left six years ago. Um, and um, every year I understand it a little bit better, come to more terms with it. So I went in when I was 20, um, and I was superior of the community when I was 33. And by the time I was 38, um, I felt that my whole life had narrowed down into this spiritual role I had made for myself, superior of this community, 24-7, a spiritual teacher. And I was only this monk personality that I made for myself. And it was incredibly narrow and narrowing. And I went deep in that narrowness. But it began to feel deadly. And I began to feel that I needed to kind of to broaden out and to be more broadly a human being, um, and to, to be more broadly with my brothers and sisters. I remember sitting in the, uh, the, what, the departures lounge at O'Hare International Airport. And unlike Wisconsin, you had all kinds of people in there from all over the world. And I was like, that's my family. That's my family. That's, I need to be with them. So it's not a, any kind of condemnation about monastic life. It's about what I did with it which is to get this very narrow kind of self as spiritual teacher, which just got deadly. And I needed to kind of break out in that to be more broad. Thank you. So this is going to be about suffering, which is nice. Um, it is something to get used to. Um, can you talk about you know, the uh, origin of suffering in, in the Bible? The war in heaven and the devil coming down to earth and yes. So it's not our fault. It's what you're saying. So why did you do this to me? here. And so I, what I see you reaching for, and there's a lot in what you said, but what I see you reaching for is some kind of comprehension. You want an explanation for the suffering that we experience on earth. That's what, what kind of is the center desire. Is that right? And what you're saying. And there's a number of things I'd love to like just chime off that. Um, one thing uh, at the end of the showings, chapter 86, 85, 86, um, Julian says that uh, when we go to heaven, get to heaven, all will be revealed to us. And we won't say to God, well, if it had been thus and so, it would have been well. 
If this hadn't happened, it would have been well. If that hadn't, but we shall say in one voice, because it is as it is, it is well. So that sense of unconditional yes becomes ours in heaven with some insight into the reason for suffering. Your question, your desire for understanding is exactly Julian's question. So what happens is Julian, by the end of Revelation 12, she's blissing out in God. God is just glory. God is bliss. And she kind of loses herself in the divine presence. And then she kind of, in the next start of the next showing, she comes back to herself in the start of Revelation 13 and says, well, what about, what about sin? And with sin, she means suffering as well. It's all contained in that. And she says, but you know, God, you could have prevented, if you loved us like this, you could have prevented all this by not allowing sin and suffering in the first place. And that's where God says to her, all shall be well. Now, what happens at that point is Julian begins to interrogate God for several chapters. She argues against God. That can't possibly be the case because of the suffering here, the sin that's here, the blindness, hell, various things. And God responds not by giving her intellectual clarity about the reason for suffering, but by inviting her to trust in spite of the suffering. So pastorally, I think the thing is to see that it is an invitation into unknowing. Like we won't have that clear comprehension maybe until heaven. And it may not even be helpful for us to have that. Um, God says to Julian, I'm not even going to show you why it is. And the more you worry about it, he says, the worse off you'll be. But the thing is to, instead of having that comprehension, to live in, well, to attempt to grow in trust in God in response to the suffering of life. And I think that's kind of what I've been talking about as compassion or faith. Because part of the fruit of suffering um, in my life and in others that I know has been my wounding opens me up to the wound of the world. And that's a tricky thing to navigate because your, wound, your wounding is still your wounding. But it does kind of open up that possibility for compassion, for in-touchness. And Julian says that it allows for a greater knowledge of ourselves and a greater knowledge of love in the end. So it, she does kind of have the sense that um, we would not be as loving or as capable of truth if we didn't suffer. <clears throat> Something like that. And the purpose of life, Julian says, is to grow in truth and love. To become more honest and more capable of being compassionate. Ooh, lots of hands, that's fantastic. A lot of hands. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Gentleman here, and then we'll come back for others. Go. I'll let you call this. Okay. So, so please. Gentleman here in the, in the black jacket. Yes. So the question is, is Julian not Zoroastrian? <laughs> um, I, and I, it's about the question of God's place in evil in Julian, um, and perhaps a more uh, positive uh, appreciation for God's uh, process with evil. Um, that's really hard. I think pastorally really uh, careful for people who are experiencing evil really hard to bring that forward and they can be incredibly sensitive um, but one thing Julian does say she doesn't have this like good evil dichotomy she's not Hollywood in that sense right um, she has a sense that um, one of the showings showing six five or six she talks about um, God allows the devil so evil personified 
to be at work, but God also limits that. So the, the devil can do things, do evil, as it were, um, but God limits that, and the, and the devil is always um, frustrated not being able to do more. And the, I, think, but I think the kicker is that what happens is that there is that evil, and the body of God wraps around that and dies from it. And I think that is the point at which, in the great uh, mystery of Easter, that mystery of that love that wraps around the suffering and dies from it, and then is reborn, is a new revelation of God's love and God's power and God's joy. But I don't think it's sort of like God deploying evil cleverly to make things work. I think that gets a little bit too sinister to me, a little bit too Machiavellian. Um, but it's, it's, it's that wrapping of the body of Jesus out of love for us around that, the nothingness of evil and suffering that, that I think is the key. Can we risk not being polite with God? So I was being funny. As an American trying to be funny, it didn't work. Um, but um, absolutely, and I know that like in my, in my journals, my writing, God can go into the third person, and it'll shift into the second person. And then I'm writing to God directly. And if you think about the monastic practice of sacred reading, Lexio Divina, it begins with some kind of sort of thinking and ruminating about God out there, and then it slips into oratio, prayer, which is second person, oh God, you, me. So I think there is, I think there is a need to begin to just imagine God and speak as a, as a thou um, to God, absolutely. Um, so Julian, in her lifetime, um, was known as an anchoress who could offer profound counsel in Norwich. So she was known among people as someone to go to to receive, as it were, spiritual counseling. As far as the writing of the book, we don't have uh, an early track on what happened with the manuscript. And we have, tr we have translations now, or, or not translations, but uh, manuscripts from 200 years later. Um, basically, Julian... Was, her text was circulated privately. She probably was known as a lover of God, one of these mystic types in a very closed circle, a very tight circle of people in Eastern England. Um, Reformation comes along. She's regarded as a heretic, as ridiculous gossip, according to one bishop, <laughs> called her ridiculous gossip. Um, her text is taken off to France in some ways. Um, and there's a, the BBC show on this talks about the whole manuscript tradition, and it's a wonderful story. I won't go into that. The big thing, uh, well, she was, she was published a couple times, 18th century, 19th century, nothing really caught on. Grace Warwick's translation of her in 1901 put her on the map. And then you had people like uh, T.S. Eliot picking her up, uh, Evelyn Underhill recognizing that she is one of the greatest mystics of our entire tradition. Um, Iris Murdoch drawing on Julian. Um, so it really happened in the 20th century and it really kicked off in 1975, 76. That's good. Okay, thank you. I can hear the bell saying it's the end of the hour. <laughs>
Thank you. Thank you. has arrived with a pile of these books, this fantastic book, Thanks, which I'm going to say, had a fantastic discount, um, which I negotiated with the shop. Well. So do come and, if you want to know more, there are a lot more questions in the book, and it's a really marvellous book. Come and, um, come and get one.